Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. You may be seated this morning. If you are in fifth grade and on down, we are again continuing a special children's church this time to work on Vacation Bible School songs. So this is an opportunity for fifth graders on down to go. The rest of you can open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 8. I do have just a few quick announcements to make before we start the message. Um, Number one, if you're going on the Niobrara canoeing kayaking trip, we're having a brief meeting right after this worship service right up here at the front. So if you're going on the men's uh, canoeing trip, uh, meet up here. Also, many of you were not here for the India um, celebration service where we, we did the India mission trip report. Um, I did make DVDs of that with all of the testimonies and everything. So if you want those, come see me and I'll give those to you. Uh, be very careful with those. Uh, we don't want those to go out on the internet. We don't want you to make copies of those because it is for security reasons. We talked about some things in that worship service with names and locations and we just don't want that information to get out. But for our church family, I do have those here for you this morning. So Daniel chapter 8. Let me start out this morning by asking you a trivia question related to football, NFL. I know it's not football season and there may be a lockout, but let me just ask you a question here this morning. What NFL team has the longest wait list for season tickets, according to Forbes magazine? The longest wait list to get, to get season tickets. Anybody know? It's not the Packers. It's not the Cowboys, it's not the Patriots, it's not the Broncos. (laughs) This is a Forbes magazine, I don't know if it's a scientific poll, but Philadelphia Eagles have the longest wait. You want to know how long it is? 4,000 years. 75,000 fans. Now the Packers are number two, 100 years, 100 year waiting list. The Redskins, 25 years. Now... That's a long time to wait for anything, 4,000 years to get season tickets. What's the longest any of you have had to wait in line to get into a restaurant? And what's your threshold? What's your threshold on that? Our threshold as a family is very short with Zachary. Um, I remember when when he was real little, we used to have a tradition in our extended family where we'd go to Spaghetti Factory on Christmas time, and we would go downtown Denver, and I think it was a a two-and-a-half-hour wait. That's a long time to wait for spaghetti. Speaking of waiting, does anybody know what's regarded as the most influential play of the 20th century? Anybody know what the most influential play? It was was in Paris in 1953. It was um, written by an Irish playwright. His name is Samuel Beckett. The play is called Waiting for Godot. Never seen it. 
but it's an absurd play about two men that are waiting around for a guy named Godot to show up. And Godot never shows up. And they wait, and they wait, and they wait. And it's really a metaphor for this whole idea of existentialism, that, that life is meaningless. And the question I've got is, why would you go to a play to watch a story about a guy that never shows up, and the whole story is based upon waiting for this dude? And we're never told why you want to wait for him, what's so important about him, he never shows up. I mean, how many of us like to actually wait around for people? Do you like waiting in lines? Our family's going to be going to Disneyland in a few weeks, and I'm sure we're going to have our fair share of waiting in lines. We, waiting is just part of life. You wait in line at Walmart. You wait in line um, in the grocery store. You wait in line in Subway, McDonald's. Kids, you have to wait in line at school. Everything is about waiting. Who likes to wait? Some of us are a little more impatient than others. Why do I spend so much time drawing your attention to this issue of waiting? Waiting. Well, if you remember last week, we launched into the second half of the book of Daniel. Daniel's chapter 7 through 12. And you remember we started on this apocalyptic um, trajectory where we, we looked at Daniel chapter 7, which has got dreams and vision and gruesome beasts. And, and we saw these four gruesome beasts that came from the earth out of the sea, the fourth beast being the Roman Empire. And out of that fourth beast coming this end times antichrist, this beast, this man of sin that will come and, and wage war and persecute the saints. And then we saw also the glorious throne room of heaven where Jesus Christ himself, the Son of Man, was invested with all power, authority, and majesty. And and chapter 7 of Daniel really deals with this whole idea of the persecution, the tribulation on a grand scale that we will experience or maybe experience on this earth. And a lot of times in churches, um, the end times is one of those weird things that you either talk about a lot or you don't talk about much. There's two extremes, I think, when it comes to talking about the end times. One extreme is The people that always talk about prophecy. They always talk about the end times. They're always listening to the prophecy conferences and the televangelists and they they have this pessimistic attitude that that everything's going bad and they get this posture of defense that we've got to be defensive-minded and we've got to be worried and we've got to be scared and we've got to be panicked. And so they're almost obsessed and overbalanced. Uh, they're, They're imbalanced with this whole idea of everything they talk about is end times. The other extreme is act like Jesus isn't coming back at all. You just kind of coast. You get lax. You relax and you don't have the urgency of the second coming. You're a lot like what people say and what 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 second Peter talks about. Second Peter chapter 3 verses 3 through 4 says this, knowing that first of all that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing following their own sinful desires. They will say, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Where's his coming? Where's the promise of his coming? If we're not careful, we can fall into one of these two extremes. We can fall into the one extreme of being so obsessed with the end times, that's all we talk about, or the other extreme of being not talking about it at all and just kind of getting lax. But Jesus tells us to watch for the Lord's return. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 1 through 6. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. 
But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. So here's a big question for us this morning. As we're waiting, we're waiting for Christ's return, right? And sometimes it seems like he's, he's never coming back. And maybe you want him to come back real soon. Or maybe you think it's way off in the distance and you're not quite sure. How, the question looming before us is this, as we wait for Christ's return. How do you and I remain faithful? How do we persevere in obedience while we wait? Because we don't know when Christ is coming back. It could be a thousand years from now. It could be tomorrow. But we're in a waiting pattern. How do we remain faithful? How do we persevere in, in obedience? And last week, we kind of focused on the macro level, the big level, the, the nations and these beasts and the Antichrist and all these things. But for most of us, we're not necessarily thinking about those big things. We may be thinking about those big things. For most of us, especially here in America, where that persecution is not so imminent yet, it may come, most of us are just dealing with the day-to-day things of life. Most of us are just dealing with maybe sickness or depression or, or, or weariness or maybe wayward children or family issues. It's just the, the daily grind of life that, that, that's taken over us as we wait. So how do we persevere? How do we handle waiting? Do we panic? Do we get all scared? Do we get all obsessed? Do we, do we get all defensive? No, because God is sovereign. As we saw last week, he's on his throne. He's in control. Do we get lax? Do we relax? Do we just coast? Oh, Christ is going to come back, but that's way, way off in the future. I can kind of live as I want. Neither one of those is biblical. The answer is to be watchful as we wait for Christ's return. And Daniel chapter 8 gives us a vision of something that literally happened in history. About 400 years after Daniel's death, something literally happened in history. And you've got three things in this chapter. You got the ram, you got the goat, you got the little horn. Three big issues. And so here's what I want to do this morning. Daniel can be so fascinating with all this information, all this history, all this stuff, and and you can get caught up in the information. And I don't want you to get so caught up in the information that you fail to see the big picture. What's the one huge point that Daniel's driving home for us? All biblical texts have that one major theme, that one big text. And so what I'm going to try to do is, yes, I'm going to give you information, the exciting things from history and how it all fits together, but I really want to give some application and some implications of how this affects us here today. So let's read. Let's first look at the ram Daniel chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, when I saw, I was in Susa, the capital, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I saw at the Ule Canal, I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high but one was higher than the other and the higher one came up last i saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward no beast could stand before him and there was no one who could rescue from his power he did as he pleased and he became 
great. Now, what's interesting here is chapter 8 is a little bit different than chapter 7. Chapter 7 dealt with these gruesome, weird beasts. This is an overgrown, domesticated farm animal. It's a ram. Not that imposing. I mean, he's, he's charging eastward and westward. He's got two horns. Who is this ram? What is this ram? Well, we know from history that this is the Medo-Persian Empire. We know from this text later on, Gabriel's going to tell Daniel, this is the Medo-Persian Empire, the empire that came after Babylon. We know from historical evidence that when the Medes and the Persians marched into war, they carried a statue, a golden statue of a ram's head as their symbol of victory. This is the Mede and Persian Empire. That, that empire that came after Babylon. But we know that God is sovereign over the nations. The Medes and the Persians didn't last forever. There was another world empire that came on the scene. There was another world empire that ousted the Medes and the Persians and conquered the world. And we see that that man's name was Alexander the Great. Ever heard of him? He was one of the greatest generals to ever live. Greece. Alexander the Great came in, wiped out the Medes and the Persians, took over the world as we know it. He's personified as the goat that we see next. And it's very ironic to me that you have goats and sheep and rams as these images. Because who is the ultimate shepherd over these? Jesus, the chief shepherd, is still sovereign over the nations. These are just mere goats. Jesus can herd them. Jesus can do whatever he wants to do with them. They come and they go. And so the ram represents the Medes and the Persians. But now let's look at the goat, Alexander the Great, Greece. Verse 5. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. Okay, so it's a vision of two two um, rams and goats fighting each other. I saw him come close to the ram and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat, that is Alexander the Great, became exceedingly great. But when he was strong, the great horn was broken and instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. The goat is Alexander the Great. The next empire is Greece. Greece stretched to be 1.5 million square miles of the known world. And in 323 BC, with a, a high bout of malaria and fever, Alexander the Great died at the age of 32. And as great as Alexander the Great was in history, I mean, probably one of the greatest generals In history, not much is mentioned about him. What's talked about here is what comes after Alexander the Great, which is more important. If you notice verse 8, it said four conspicuous horns came out of this goat. Now, what in the world are these four conspicuous horns? We know from history that when Alexander the Great died, Greece was divided into four regions, four kingdoms with four different generals and there was one of those generals one of those rulers out of those four kingdoms that this vision particularly focuses on he's called the little horn now i don't want to confuse you we need to be very clear here 
Last week, we looked at the little horn. Where did the little horn come from in chapter 7? It came out of the Roman Empire, the Fourth Empire, talking about an end times antichrist, the end times beast, the end times a man of sin. Chapter 8 talks about a little horn, but it's different. The little horn in chapter 7 is different than the little horn in chapter 8. The little horn in chapter 8 is a real historical person that came from the Greek Empire, not the Roman Empire. So we're talking about two different little horns, okay? Chapter 7, think Antichrist. Chapter 8, think about a literal person from history 400 years after Daniel from the Greek Empire empire of these four nations now let's continue reading and find out about this little horn this outrageous wicked ruler and what he's done to god's people let's look at verse nine out of them out of one of these four kingdoms these four horns came a little horn which grew exceedingly great toward the south toward the east and toward the glorious land it was great even to the host of heaven And some of the host and some of the stars that threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression, and it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me for 2,300 evenings and morning that the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. What in the world does this mean? This little horn is none other. There's no dispute among scholars who this little horn is. It's none other than a man named Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes. Epiphanes. He gave himself the nickname Epiphanes. Epiphanes means God illustrious. In other words, he was saying, look at me, I am God. And verse 9 is very important because it tells us where his reign of terror is located. He's going toward the glorious land. Your translation may say the beautiful land. What's he talking about there? He's talking about Israel. Israel. Not because Israel is so beautiful, uh, scenic-wise, it is, but it's the beautiful land. It's the promised land. It's the land where God dwells. He's talking about Israel. So Antiochus Epiphanes is going to go against God's people in Israel and do some very wicked things. Now, verses 10 through 13 tell us some of these wicked things he's going to do in the burnt offerings, going against God and God's people, doing some majorly uh, just scandalous things. But we can read history books and find out what Antiochus Epiphanes did. What did Antiochus Epiphanes actually do? In 170 BC, he started his reign of terror against the Jews in Palestine. It began with the assassination of the high priest in the temple, Onias III. He marched into the temple in Jerusalem, stole and plundered all the treasures, the furniture, the gold. It was estimated that 80,000 people, men, women, boys and girls, and infants, were slaughtered as he marched into Jerusalem. He tore up and burned copies of the Bible. And in 167 BC, he did the worst thing that you could think of. In the Holy of Holies, in God's temple, he erected a statue of Zeus and slaughtered a pig 
on the altar. The epitome of wickedness. He's a picture of anti-Semitism that you see thousands of years later in people like Stalin and Hitler. He's a picture of an antichrist. 1 John 2.18 says this, Children, it is the last hour. As you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know it's the last hour. Now, yes, he's not the end times Antichrist, but he's a picture of the Antichrist because John says many Antichrists have come. So he goes and he desecrates the temple, slaughters a pig, erects a statue of Zeus, and and then it says, how long is this going to happen? Well, the scripture says 2,300 mornings and evenings. I'm not going to go into all the detail because there's about five or six different interpretations of that. And I don't want to bore you with all those. But I'll tell you kind of where I land. If you look at the time that Antiochus Epiphany started his reign and the Maccabean revolt came up from some Jewish leaders and, and conquered him, guess how long that was? Three and a half years. So when you think about three and a half years... It's a metaphor in the Jewish mind of a time of intense tribulation, a time of intense persecution, a time of intense hostility. And so many scholars look at that 2,300 days and nights as a symbolic way of saying this was about a three and a half year period of the reign of Antiochus Epiphanes. Now, in verses 15 through 25, the angel Gabriel is going to give the actual interpretation of what's going on. So let's read what happens next. Verse 15. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood one before me, having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Ule, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near to where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, O son of man, that this vision is for the time of the end. Now let me just stop there. You may be confused. This vision's for the time of the end. I don't think that he's talking about the end end that we're talking about. I think it's talking about the end of the reign of Antiochus Epiphanes. Sometimes in biblical prophecy, there's an immediate um, fulfillment and there's a, a long way future. So the time of the end is not like the end times here. I think he's talking about the time of the end of that specific situation when Antiochus Epiphanes would come to an end 400 years later against the Jews when he slaughtered that pig on the altar. Verse um, 18. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face on the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. We find out right there the identity. And the goat is the king of Greece, Alexander the Great. And the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall rise from his nation, but not with his power. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand and in his own mind, he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes and he shall be broken, but not by human hand. Gabriel gives the interpretation. Gabriel's a famous angel. He appears to Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist. He appears to Mary. 
There's only a, one other angel in the Bible that's given a name. That's Michael, the archangel. You have Michael and Gabriel. And in verse 23, we find out more about this little horn, this Antiochus Epiphanes. What does it say in verse 23? At the latter end of the kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, a bold-faced king. What that means in the original language is he would have this ruthless power to come against anyone who would get in his way, he would just ruthlessly kill. And then it says, he understands riddles. Now, what does that mean? Literally translated, he's a master of intrigue. He's a political genius. He's a man that has got great cunning. He's a treacherous schemer. Verse 25 says he has great cunning. He's going to be a master of intrigue. He's going to be a ruthless leader that's going to basically bring a holocaust against the Jews in that time. Now look at also at verse 25. By his cunning he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind he shall become great. What was his nickname? Epiphanes, which means God is illustrious. God is made manifest. I am God. He actually had coins printed with, with that inscription on there. Antiochus Epiphanes. I want to be God. Does this sound like the very first lie in the Bible out of the mouth of Satan himself? What was the very first lie in the Bible? Genesis chapter 3, verse 5. When Eve is there looking at the fruit, listen to the words of the, of the serpent. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be what? Like God, knowing good from evil. Antiochus Epiphanes wanted to be like God. And then he sets himself up against God. Notice what else it says in verse 25. He shall even rise up against the prince of princes. He's going to rise up against God. He's going to try to go against God and God's people. He's going to go into that temple. He's going to destroy it. And it says that he will be broken, but not by human hand. Which means that he's not going to die of assassination attempt. He's not going to die of a, uh, in battle. He was going to die of natural causes. As a matter of fact, he died of grief and remorse in 163 BC after being routed by these Jews under the Maccabean revolt. Now, Antiochus Epiphanes was a real historical figure, but I think he's a prototype for what the end times Antichrist will look like what all of these beasts from the earth will try to do against God's people to different degrees or others. So what I want us to do is see some parallels between what Antiochus Epiphanes did in history and what may be going on today in our day. And you need to understand something. It says his power does not come from himself. Where does that power come from? Satan. Satan is behind all of these. Satan is behind the Antichrist. Satan was behind Antiochus Epiphanes. Satan is behind all of these movements to go against God's people in all ages. What does Peter tell us about Satan? 1 Peter 5, 8. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So what we see in Antiochus Epiphanes is a picture of spiritual warfare in all ages. But let's just look at a few things here. What's the first thing that he did? He came in and he disrupted and destroyed what? The sacrificial system. Slaughtered a pig on the altar to Zeus. Now you may think that's an important thing, but this was the total life of the nation of Israel in the temple. And they were under the Old Testament system, and so uh, uh, sacrificing goats and bulls and things like that was the way that, that sins were forgiven, but it all pointed to who? 
to Jesus. This was all a foreshadowing of Christ being the ultimate sacrifice. And so when you think about what Satan's attempts are, back then it's a was to, let's just get rid of the blood sacrifice of a substitute for our sins. What does Satan do today? He tries to detract us from the sufficiency of the cross and the blood atonement of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And so the atonement, the blood of Christ, the crucifixion, it's under attack today. So how do we wage a spiritual battle in the world in which we live? We focus on the cross. We remember the old rugged cross. We survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died. Sinclair Ferguson said this, and I think it's an awesome quote. He says this, Beware of anything purporting to be biblical Christianity that does not emphasize the necessity of Christ's sacrifice for forgiveness of sins. Or beware of anything that teaches a style of discipleship that avoids the daily bearing of the cross. Such teaching does not come from above, but from below. When we take the Lord's Supper in just a few moments, we are celebrating the sufficiency of the blood and body of Jesus Christ for sin. And Satan is going to do everything he can to detract us from a substitutionary atonement through Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of sins. He did it through Antiochus Epiphanes in the temple system of trying to disrupt the sacrificial system. Satan's going to distract us today from Christ and his atonement. What else did Antiochus Epiphanes do besides disrupting the, the, the sacrificial system? He destroyed the temple. He came in and ransacked the temple. Now, we don't have a temple today, do we? Trick question. We don't have a physical temple today, do we? But we have a spiritual one. It's called the church. We are Christ's temple. And so just as Antiochus Epiphanes came in to destroy the temple, Satan today is going to destroy the church. He's going to want to try to destroy God's people the living stones that are being built into a spiritual house. And there's been two tactics that Satan has used from the very beginning to go against God's church. These tactics are not new. He does them all the time. We need to be aware of two ways that Satan comes against the church. The first way is outward pressure. He will bring persecution against the church from outward forces. That's, that's way number one. Second Timothy 3.12 says this, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, what? May be persecuted? Might be persecuted? Will be persecuted. Now, in America, we're probably not seeing it as much yet. But in places like India, where we went, you can be persecuted for becoming a Christian. You can lose your job, your family, your your scholarship, all these types of things. And as a church, as God's people, there's going to be the temptation to not stand strong in the face of evil. You're going to be laughed at for the stands that you take. You're going to be laughed at. You're going to be misunderstood. Just the other night, I was watching Fox News, and um, Rebecca St. James, you know, she's a Christian recording artist. She was talking about abstinence and purity, and she was talking about modesty and the way that, that girls dress, and the other guest was just berating her for being someone that would stand up for modesty. I mean, she was just berating her. And I couldn't believe how much persecution Rebecca St. James was. And she wasn't even saying anything that Atlanta. She was just saying that girls should dress modest. The second way that Satan attacks the church, he does it from outward pressure. That's easy to see, right? You can see that enemy. The second one's scarier and probably more apparent here in America. The second way he's going to try to destroy the church is through inward pressure, 
bubbling up as heresy, false doctrine, false teachings. Jude, verse 3, says this, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you appealing to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. We're to fight for truth. Now, I don't often name drop from this pulpit. And as pastor, I feel like I need to warn you of some heresies that are going on hot and heavy in our world right now. You maybe have heard of Rob Bell in his book, Love Wins. It's taking America by storm, especially on college campuses. It's outright heresy. My friend, who was a former youth in my youth group, he's now getting ready to graduate from Texas A&M. I Skyped with him last week, and he was telling me about how everybody's embracing this book in Texas A&M. And people that he thought was solid are now embracing this. And he's afraid for some of his friends that are embracing this outright heresy. And so Satan's always going to try to attempt to, to bring things into the church to destroy it through outward pressure, through persecution, through inward pressure, through heresy. What does Paul say in 2 Corinthians 11? For such men are false prophets, deceitful workmen disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. You know, when we think about the unity of the church, one of the things that the Lord's Supper represents is we come together to celebrate communion. Communion means community. We stand together. We stand together around the blood of Christ. We stand together around our convictions. We stand together around our theology. We stand together around our relationships. And so the Lord's Supper is more than just um, taking some bread and taking uh, some some juice. It's celebrating the fact that we are unified as a church under a, a same theology, under the cross of Christ. But thirdly, as we saw last week, Antiochus Epiphanes is really a picture of the end times Antichrist. He's a picture, a prototype of this man of sin who will come at the end of the age and unleash something even greater than what Antiochus Epiphanes unleashed. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 8 and 10. And the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with his breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. I'm not going to rehash what we talked about last week, but they refused to love the truth. Let's read the end of the matter here in Daniel. Verse 26. The vision of the evening and the morning that had been told is true. But seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. Gabriel tells Daniel, seal up the vision. Means protect it. Make it secure so that future generations can actually read it. And we have it in our Bible today because he sealed up the vision. But the last verse is what I really want to focus on. This is really where the rubber meets the road for us today. Verse 27. Because we're not living during the time of Antiochus Epiphanes... We don't have a literal temple with Zeus and all these things. But verse 27, I think, is so practical. Three things we see. We see Daniel's response. Now, how are we to to, to respond as we're waiting for the end times? As we're waiting for Christ to come, we've looked at some things. Focus on the cross. Focus on sound theology. Stand strong in the face of persecution. Believe the truth. Uphold the truth. But what does Daniel do? Let's see three things from Daniel. Verse 27. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. First thing that we see Daniel is he's appalled. 
He's sickened by what he sees. And that should be our response as well. When you see the outright persecution, when you see the evil, when you see all the stuff going on in this world, it should sicken your heart. That word where he says, I was overcome, it really means he was exhausted to the point of wanting to call it quits. He had finished. He he wanted to call it quits. We need to be appalled by what we see, but this is where we need to be very, very, very careful as evangelical Christians. We can get so appalled by what we see that it can turn into being judgmental. And we can be very defensive-minded. And we can have an us-versus-them mentality, and we can cast stones and say, I'm thankful I'm saved, but you guys are all going to hell, and I'm glad you're going, because it's getting so bad. More than anything, being appalled by what's going on in the end times should lead us to weeping, should lead us to compassion. Because people are in an appalling state, And we don't want people to be in an appalling state. We want them to be saved out of that the way we were saved out of that. What did Jesus do? He had compassion. Matthew 9, 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like a sheep without a shepherd. Yes, be appalled by what you see. But let that not move you to judgmentalism. Let that move you to evangelism to share the gospel with people that need to be rescued out of that. They are sinners. They're not the enemy. Satan is the enemy. They're just prisoners of war of the enemy. And we need to be gentle and loving and wanting to rescue them out of that appalling state. Now, the second thing I find very encouraging, Daniel did not understand it. I like that. Here we have the greatest man, one of the greatest men in the Old Testament to ever live. He interpreted dreams. He read the writing on the wall. Probably one of the most wise men that ever lived and he couldn't understand it. Are you supposed to understand everything about the end times? I'm glad I don't. And I think God's purposely done that for us. And we need to be very, very, very careful of anybody that comes along and is overly dogmatic about the end times that thinks they've got it all figured out. If you think you've got it all figured out, Daniel didn't even understand what he saw. Be very, very careful of any teacher or preacher that comes and says, here's the end times, I've got it in the box, I've got it all figured out, I'm rigid, this is the way it is, and there's no room for mystery. The end times, I think, are purposely mysterious. And I've quoted this verse often, but this is a good cop-out verse, Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord, our God, but the things that are revealed to us belong to to us and our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. Sometimes God just doesn't tell us everything. And we're not supposed to know everything. That's encouraging. You don't have to know everything about the end times. But thirdly, I think most importantly for us, notice what it says about Daniel. He rose and went about the king's business. He didn't go retreat in a cave. He didn't go hide out. He didn't panic. He didn't wring his hands. He got up and went back to work. He went right back into that culture, right back into that pagan society. He knew that God had called him to be obedient. God had called him to be productive. He said, okay, I've seen the vision. It's not happened yet. Let's get back to business. Let's get back to what God has called me to do. Let me serve the Lord where he's placed me. And so here's my question for you. The king, Jesus, he's assigned every one of you in this room an assignment. So the question you've got to answer for yourselves is, what am I about to be doing 
to be doing the king's business. What has he called me to do? I'm to be about doing the king's business. What's the king's business? Now, for for all of us, it may be different. For some of you, it may be a stay-at-home mom who's changing diapers, and God has called you to to do that for his glory. For other views, it may be filing papers in an office, or working in retail, or working on a farm, or designing airplanes, or being a student, or working at the prison, or working as a teacher, or writing music, or painting pictures, or coaching soccer, or whatever God has called you to do specifically. The question is, are you about the king's business? Are you doing it for the glory of the king? He's called you to do something while you wait. He's called you to be productive for his glory. And more than ever, it's not the time for Christians to retreat. We should never retreat from society and just give up. More than ever, it's time for Christians to get involved in the political process, to get involved in the arts and entertainment industry, to get involved in business, to get involved in city government, to get involved in all aspects of culture so that we can be salt and light. That's what Daniel did. He got up, he went back into that society, and went about the king's business. Remember, there's two extremes when it comes to the end times. One is you can panic and fear and be all, uh, you know, the world's going to hell and I'm scared and let's get out of here and let's just... um, Be really judgmental and panicked. That's one response. The other response is, hey, Jesus is never coming back. Let's just live the way we want to live. Let's just coast. Let's just relax. Again, neither one of those are biblical. The biblical one is to, yes, be aware the end is coming. And yes, be appalled at the vision. And yes, be confused because Daniel was. And yes, experience persecution. And yes, go out and win people for Christ with the, with the gospel. But ultimately, you get up and you do the king's business. Every single one of you in here has something that God has called you to do in your calling, in your life. Are you about being, doing the king's business? The return of Christ should be a strong motivation for us to persevere. Because we know he's coming back. We know he's coming back. And last week we saw that wonderful imagery that God is on his throne. He's the ancient of days. He's seated. He's not worried. He's not scared. He's seated. Christ is there at his right hand with all power and authority. And we are receiving an unshakable kingdom as his people. So because God is sovereign, because Christ is ruler, because Christ has died for us and risen again, and because we're receiving an unshakable kingdom, regardless of what comes our way, are we about the king's business? Daniel was. He got up and went about the king's business. And as you think about the Lord's Supper... It's a visual and a spiritual reminder of what we are to do as we wait. Do you realize that the Lord's Supper is part of waiting? Where do I get that? In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26, Paul says this, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death, what? Until he comes. So when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we are in fact saying, we're waiting for Christ to come. He hasn't come yet, but what are we doing? We're proclaiming his death. We're focusing on the cross. We're focusing on the glories of what Jesus has done for us in forgiving us. We're focusing on grace. And so one of the ways that we wait for the return of Christ is we celebrate the Lord's Supper together as a church family. And that's what we're going to do this morning as we wait. Christ could come back right now and rip the heavens open. Or it could be a thousand years from now, but until that time comes, we as a church are called to celebrate the Lord's Supper and proclaim his death until he comes.
So I'm going to ask our men to come forward at this time, our deacons and our elders and those that are helping to prepare our hearts. And as we think about the partaking of the Lord's Supper, Paul does give us some instructions there in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He says this in verse 27, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now, before we take the Lord's Supper, let me just explain to you a couple things about how we do it, the importance of why we do it. Number one, we do it because